This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we're talking about dialects like Spanish-influenced English, African-American English, or Southern White English. Our guests are experts on the subject matter, and they share tips and advice for school-based SLPs. Central to today's conversation are issues of perspective. If you feel certain ways about various dialect variations, whether you think they're prestigious or they have a stigma, because these attitudes may carry into how you provide assessment and treatment without you even being conscious about it. Plus, what do you do when the administration doesn't understand your role? I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's resource, That's Unheard Of. This online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Check out thatsunheardof.org. Joining me on the podcast are two SLPs specializing in speech-language disorders and dialects, Kiyomi Gregory-Martin and Jana Edding. Kiyomi is an SLP and assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Pace University. Jana is also an SLP and professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders and the Interdepartmental Program in Linguistics at Louisiana State University, where Kiyomi received her doctorate, as you'll hear referenced later in the episode. In 2016, the duo co-published, along with a fellow researcher, an article in the ASHA journal Perspectives. The article is titled, Changing How Speech-Language Pathologists Think and Talk About Dialect Variation. In that paper, they write, quote, Dialects are fascinating, as is evident by the many documentaries produced about them in the many cartoons and social media posts that celebrate the different ways humans speak. In fact, it is easy to engage just about anyone into a conversation about the prestige and stigmatization of different dialects within the United States and elsewhere, end quote. And although we're going to be discussing language development and speech-language disorders, I wanted to begin by focusing on dialects. Inspired by this quote, I asked both Kiyomi and Jana what it is that they find fascinating about dialects. Kiyomi speaks first. Yeah, I'm going to say just all of the nuances of dialects. So my family speaks Guyanese Creole. They're from Guyana, which is a country in South America. And I think that coupled with me living and being from New York City, I was just so aware of all of the different dialect variations that are here and present. And, you know, hearing all these different ways that people are able to communicate, but get across the same message. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, My previous experience prior to getting my PhD, I worked for the New York City Public Schools. And I worked at a school that was the only bilingual school in the district, coupled with a community that had a really large Latinx and Caribbean population. So it was so much um, language variation among the children that I worked with, with providing them with treatment. And Jana, what about you? What is it that you find fascinating about dialects? My PhD training was in the Midwest, and I studied work by Mabel Rice and Larry Leonard. And both of them were very interested in understanding language impairment in children cross-linguistically. So Larry Leonard was really leading the field at the time, and still is, on studying language impairment in different languages, German, French, Italian, And I didn't know any of those languages, so I was fascinated by the work, but I couldn't engage in the work. When I moved to Louisiana for my first study, I immediately realized that there were these wonderful language varieties here, and there was no literature on them. We had a small amount of literature on African-American English in children. It was mostly from Northern varieties. 
And so I decided that I would make the study of language impairment in the dialect spoken by children in Louisiana my area of research. And nothing makes me happier than waking up knowing that I'm going to collect data in a kindergarten classroom. I'm going to have the best morning ever because I'm going to hear the melody. I'm going to hear the patterns, the systematicity of the language the children are, are producing. We're going to talk a little bit more about the research that you're doing. But before we kind of dive into that a little more, I want to talk about one other thing that jumped out to me in that quote I just read, which is that you mentioned prestige and stigmatization. Could you speak to the social aspect of dialect and what you mean by prestige and stigmatization? Sure, I'll take this one. Most people, you know, have an opinion about speakers based on how they talk. And we have some really nice work from John Bow done um, quite a while ago showing that landlords discriminate against individuals based on the dialect that they spoke. And what was interesting about that study is he was multi-lectal and he was the caller and he would change his dialect. From that study and from many others, we know that some dialects spoken in the United States really are stigmatized. In fact, Lisa Delpit um, who's from Baton Rouge, wrote this wonderful book called The Skin That We Speak. And in that book, she talks about how people are judged by their dialects. So that would be the stigmatized side. On the other hand, we have prestige dialects. I remember being a, a graduate student going to um, the Boston area to a conference and feeling like my Midwestern dialect wasn't as prestigious as some of the dialects I was hearing at Boston. Um, or by some of those professors. And then certainly we have European dialects or British dialects that individuals in the United States will find prestigious. And we will have to ask, you know, well, why? Why are those prestigious and why are ones spoken in the United States not as prestigious as general American English? Kiyomi, anything to add? Yeah, when Jan is talking, the word that comes to mind is linguicism. You know, that's, a, you know, it's unconscious bias we might have towards certain dialect variations and people aren't even aware of it. You know, I've started talking more about that word to clinicians and they were like, oh, I've never even heard of that term before and didn't really even have the awareness of how to, what the word is around it. If you feel certain ways about various dialect variations, whether you think they're prestigious or they have a stigma, because these attitudes may carry into, you know, how you provide assessment and treatment without you even being conscious about it. Going back to your 2016 article, it is titled Changing How Speech-Language Pathologists Think and Talk About Dialect Variation. The change the title references is one that goes from a dialect versus disorder framework to a disorder within a dialect framework. It may sound subtle at first, but the implications run deep. So could you both talk to me about that framework and that change and what it means to say disorder within the dialect instead of dialect versus disorder? It's really centering the conversation on what our role is as SLPs. So if you focus on disorder within dialect, we're focusing on what our job is, which is identifying if a child has a speech sound disorder or a language disorder. Um, we really shouldn't really care about what dialect variation is being spoken because we all speak a specific dialect. So it really shouldn't matter. The focus should really be on, is there truly a language disorder present? 
So I think it's more about centering the conversation on what our purpose is. And you begin to have different conversations when you say disorder within dialect, because the focus is on what our job is and what we do. Yeah, I agree, Kiyomi. I would also add that if you go and read the literature that's from the other paradigm, dialect versus disorder, you can find on the internet or in book chapters or in articles, people will talk about, um, they'll say, well, all the children are producing that type of sentence or that grammar form or that vocabulary word, then that's dialect. If only a small group of children are producing something in that classroom, then that would be the disorder. The dialect versus disorder framework really forces you to look for markers of impairment in utterances that typically developing children never produce. And the thing is, is that's not how language impairment and typical development works. Language impaired children are learning the dialect of their community and they're producing the same utterances that children who are typically developing produce. If anything, they're producing utterances that are more immature. So if you take a six-year-old who speaks, for example, African-American English, and you look at their language and you compare it to a four-year-old who's typically developing, who speaks African-American English, you're going to see utterances that are similar in those two groups. Trying to find utterances that have errors, dialect inappropriate productions that typical developing children don't produce isn't really something that you can find unless you're cherry picking and picking out an utterance with an error and not rigorously examining your typically developing children's utterances. This requires a, a pretty thorough understanding of different dialects though, correct? Yes, it definitely does. But if you spend a lot of time in a classroom, for example, if you're a working speech language pathologist in a school and you spend time in the lunchroom and you spend time with typically developing children and children with language impairments, and you start to pay attention to what's the difference between three-year-old's use of AAE, a four-year-old's use, a five-year-old's use, and a six-year-old's use, and you begin to get a sense of developmental differences, then it's going to be easier to identify who is the language impaired child at the age of six who's not keeping up with his or her typically developing peers. I think what Jan is talking about is really understanding the communities in which you work in. And that takes time. It's important to really understand the communities in which you work in and really understand the language variations that are spoken within the community. And I think that really requires the SLPs to get to know the schools they're in and to really immerse themselves in the language variation. I mean, once they figure out what the dialect variations are that are spoken in that community is being able to collect information. I guess sometimes I call it like local norms, but local information to the school that they're working in to get a better understanding. Of course, there are going to be some dialect variations that you come across that are rare or, you know, you've never heard before where it would require a lot of asking information and maybe the parents and family to get a better idea of what typical development might look like. But if we think about any of the dialect variations that there've been lots of publications on like Spanish influenced English or African-American English or Southern white English, at least you have a starting point 
you know, have an idea of what that might look like in terms of all of the domains of language. And I, I focus on that too, because people always just focus on sometimes phonology um, and syntax, you know, morphosyntax, but pragmatics, there's still other areas, like it's all domains that encompass a dialect. In the time since writing the 2016 paper, Kiyomi and Jana have partnered on other publications, including one published just last year about markings of tense and agreement in African-American English and Southern white English. You'll hear Jana refer to these structures as taboo, meaning that in the past, SLPs were encouraged to not assess or treat structures that vary across dialects. I asked Kiyomi and Jana about tense and agreement, and their response highlights how the disorder within a dialect framework operates. Here's Kiyomi giving an example from African-American English. I'm thinking about, you know, leaving out is or are, you know, he walking instead of he is walking. You get this information from language samples. Was and were, a lot, there's a lot of optionality of certain structures within African-American English. Tense and agreement has been studied across languages, but they're really taboo structures in African-American English. So let me give you an example. In African-American English, it's perfectly fine to say he walking. You can also say he is walking or he's walking. All three are equally appropriate in African-American English. But for years, since the 80s, speech language pathologists have said, don't look at that structure because when children say he walking, you might interpret that as an impairment when it's really dialect appropriate. And so we just didn't look at them. And what our lab has done is said, let's look at them and let's compare these structures as produced by children with impairments and children who are typically developing. And one of the things you find is that the typically developing child who speaks AAE by the time they're six will say, he's walking, he walking, he's walking, but their frequency distribution of those will show higher percentages of overt marking. So the he's walking, or he walking, than the child who is language impaired. They're relying on the zero form, he walking. And so their percentage of he walking is much higher than the percentage of the typically developing child who's saying he's walking. That's what we mean by productivity. So how would SLPs be able to track that? What would they be looking for? Well, that's where Kiyomi's um, uh, idea of local norms is so important. You know, we are so, we are, our science is so young when it comes to African-American English. We need studies of African-American English speaking children in rural areas and urban areas in different parts of the country because African-American English, when it comes to these frequency distribution, is probably varying. And we need to have those local norms so that we can compare the child who's language impaired to their typically developing peers. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, our guests share more tips on how to learn about dialects that are new to you. And we talk about developmental language disorder. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's resource, That's Unheard Of. It's always important to check for blind spots in your practice. That's Unheard Of features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. They're quick and easy to use. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. Jane, I know you've written before about how this concept of 
disorder within a dialect, this framework, relates to developmental language disorder. That's something we spoke about on this podcast recently is developmental language disorder. And our guest at that time said there needed to be more research into DLD. Could you talk a little bit about how this framework relates to DLD? Yeah. So what this framework does is it allows researchers of DLD to study the profile in African-American English, Southern White English, and other dialects that are not general American English. And if you look at our history, the study of DLD or specific language impairment, SLI, has all been done in general American English. And our other dialects have been sitting on the side. We haven't been able to bring literature from those dialects into mainstream literature because we weren't studying these structures. They were taboo structures and they were markers of the dialect And so we didn't even look at them to see if there was individual differences in the use of them as a function of child's, you know, DLD or typically developing status. And so by looking at this, how does that change things? What opportunities are gained? I want to say helping to correctly identify children that might have DLD that speak these specific dialects, such as African-American English or Southern White English. We can't use the model that we were using with mainstream American English. So that's why this information is so important. Yeah, I think it leads to just really growth in our literature about how do children acquire language across dialects. It's exciting to me because it opens up doors for scholars to study language acquisition across dialects. Kiyomi, I wanted to, you've talked a couple times about being familiar with the culture of the area that you work in. You wrote an article for the Asha Leader. It was called Moving Forward as a Profession in a Time of Uncertainty. And the article was published in August of 2020. And the time of uncertainty the title is referencing is one that centers on issues around inequities and injustices. And you mentioned the murder of George Floyd and the revelation of racial inequities that were highlighted through COVID-19. You write about two concepts, cultural competency and cultural humility. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of those concepts? Yeah, so cultural competence and cultural humility are two concepts that are, they have a synergistic relationship. They go together. I don't think you you can't get to cultural humility without cultural competence. So cultural competence is really that base, but Cultural humility is about going beyond that. So being a lifelong learner, having openness, being egoless, that having that egolessness to kind of be open to situations where you may be engaging with clients and you don't know everything. There's an opportunity to learn from them. So I think the same thing ties in when it comes to dialect variation is you really have to take the opportunity to learn from your clients. And it may be a dialect variation that you're unfamiliar with. You wrote in that article, quote, we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable if we want to be aware of our missteps as a discipline. As professionals in speech language and hearing science, this is a time that our voices can't afford to be silent. It is simply not enough to be culturally competent or a quote unquote good person. The world requires more, end quote. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. What can audiologists and SLPs be doing to deepen their cultural competency and their cultural humility? I think definitely being willing to learn from the communities that they work in 
and really doing their homework, spending time being aware of their own unconscious biases, whether it you know has to do with linguism, accentism, what are the populations they're working with, and also being aware of the structural determinants of health. So within those communities, are there questions of access? And if there are questions of access, that's going to impact the ability for the client to navigate through treatment. So kind of being aware of those barriers of your clients and having those conversations to overcome those barriers. Uh, Janet, you mentioned to me that your dialect is from the Midwest. And when you went to Louisiana, you were working with students with a different dialect. What did you do to better understand the dialect and the culture within which you were researching and studying? Well, first of all, I did a lot of reading. I think I was hired in 91 and didn't really write a grant until 1997. And so I sat in on linguistic courses and got to know different people around Louisiana. I volunteered at some of the primary schools. I sought out students to work in the lab who were from Louisiana. And then, you know, I just have always been incredibly curious about linguistic variation. I'm a lifelong learner. I've been incredibly lucky to have fabulous PhD students like Kiyomi who have shared their knowledge and expertise and, you know, I'm, I'm always the weakest link in the lab because I'm monolectal. I'm not from Louisiana and I don't have a lot of variation in my dialect. So I think it's just that curiosity piece. I want to briefly interrupt to list a couple of resources. First, you can find a presentation from today's guests online. Recorded in January of 2022, this free presentation is hosted by ASHA Special Interest Group 1. They focus on language learning and education. Kiyomi is a member at large of that Special Interest Group's coordinating committee. During the presentation, you'll hear our guests further discuss the disorder within a dialect framework and dialect awareness training programs. And you just heard Kiyomi talk about structural determinants of health and questions of healthcare access. Want to learn more about this subject? Check out the episode of ASHA Voices from September of 2021 called Confronting Healthcare Disparities. It's in the podcast archive. Find links to both resources at on.asha.org slash podcast. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I'm actually just thinking about earlier comment that Jana made, but the question you asked her about how she approached working with dialect variations other than the variation that she speaks. And I think that's such an important question because in my conversations with clinicians, sometimes they feel like they don't know how to tackle some of these varying dialects if they're not a speaker of it. They're like, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't know what to do. So I think that's such an important conversation, especially when I think about the demographics of our profession in speech language pathology in comparison to the demographics of the United States and the amount of language variation that exists. So I think that we need to be okay with recognizing that we may come across clients that speak a dialect variation that we're not familiar with, but we still need to be willing to do the work. Because you're saying the demographics of speech-language pathology don't reflect the demographics of the U.S. Yeah, it doesn't. And I think the fact that it doesn't means that we have to be willing to do that work. If you happen to be an SLP 
who's working in a community that you don't speak the dialect variation, that can't be a reason to be afraid of making a diagnosis. It's more so about doing the work and the research to learn more about it. And how would you recommend that they do that research? Jana mentioned reading books, being in the community, hiring people, and working with people that are living in that community. It sounds like a lot of that, Jana, was exposure to the community and the way that people speak in that community. Kiyomi, building off of that, do you agree with those approaches? And are there any more you might recommend? Yeah, definitely exposing yourself to the community. Also, I think it takes a while to actually understand the culture of the school that you're working in or the place that you're working in. So it may mean you tracking information across six months to a year. I know that when I started working in the New York City public schools, even though I was from New York City, the school I was working in, I wasn't as familiar with that specific community. So I had to do a lot of work with talking to related professionals, you know, the teacher of English language learning, the teachers that shared the dialect variation of the students. When they were able to give me a lot of insight of what, you know, does, does this look like typical development? What are you seeing? What are you hearing in the class? Just because you may only get a snapshot as an SLP when you see a child for the assessment while the teacher has other information they can be able to provide to you that may give you a better picture of what's going on with that child in terms of um, the dialect variation that's being spoken and what, you know, what is a typical development? Is there some kind of language disorder present? So even getting those pieces of information are important. Kiyomi, your comments remind me of your dissertation because you looked at teacher ratings and those teacher ratings were collected at the end of the year. So the teachers had the full year to really work with their children. And you can talk about your findings, but what, what I remember is that the teachers were actually very good at the end of the year of ranking the children on abilities. And so having that teacher input, having parent input, and then I think we as SLPs have to start self-advocating that we're experts, but we don't diagnose children in a 10-minute session especially when we're working in a community with dialect and language diversity. We need more time to do our job. We need more data to accurately diagnose children. Yeah, I really think that goes back again, you know, getting a full picture in terms of assessment. And we talk about this all the time, I think, as a profession about the important pieces of information. But, you know, it is the language sample. It is the assessment tools that you use. It's, if you're going to, you can use dynamic assessment. But then gathering all of those pieces to really get a full picture of the child. Because I always think about it like, you know, taking a selfie of yourself when you see a child, like you get that picture, but I don't know what's going on in the background. I have no idea what's happening in that background unless I get all the pieces. You're saying the assessment is like a selfie. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. Because I don't know if you had, yeah, I don't know what's happening in the background. If I, if I only get that one picture. Mm -hmm. So if the assessment was a selfie, um, <laughs> what would be in the picture and what would be maybe out of frame? I think out of the frame would be the information from the family. Out of the frame would be the information about that student in the classroom um, in comparison to their peers. I can't get that one-on-one. -on -one. 
a lot of useful information from the teacher. Oftentimes they have portfolios that the students have access to testing within the school that's done. That could kind of offer you a picture observing them, not only in the classroom, but in the lunchroom. What's their interaction with their peers? I think there's just a lot of pieces that sometimes you just can't get one-on-one with that child. You've alluded to this, and uh, Jan, I think you alluded to this as well. It's it's going to require you to to advocate for yourself if you're an SLP in the schools, because these things take time. And any tips on self advocacy in these situations? I think it's an ongoing process. <laughs> We're just reflecting back to working in the schools, and I had to advocate for myself a lot because there wasn't really true understanding of the full scope of what I did. So even the idea of us working on language, that was something that I remember speaking to administration about and giving them a clear picture and going back to ASHA's, the role of responsibilities of a school SLP, of all the areas that are part of what we do. And it was really eye-opening in those conversations with administration that there was just a lack of understanding as to where we fit in in terms of language. I have to think that would be so frustrating. It is. It's very frustrating. And I, I think that that's one of the areas that as SLPs, sometimes when they leave their master's program, they don't realize how much advocacy they're going to have to do for themselves in terms of people just even understanding the focus of language. And people often think about speech as how someone just sounds. But what about those language pieces, those children that we may not diagnose because it, it's not as clear to um, individuals within the school? Mm-hmm. You mentioned the children, because it's advocating for yourself, but it's really advocating for the children. Right. We want to advocate for all children. And so if we improve our assessments and find a way to advocate, because, you know, literacy is in our scope as well. And you can't, that selfie isn't going to show you language in all different contexts, right, in reading and writing. But if we advocate that our assessments have to include more pieces, Our job has to include assessing a child when they come in from the playground and they want to tell us about an event that happened in the past on the playground. And it has to include how do they use language to explain what they're reading or to write about something that happened in a lecture. Those are all pieces that we need as speech pathologists. And if we advocate that we need those for all children, you know, not just African-American English speaking kids, but all children, you know, the SLP will have, you know, more data and and more valid assessments. I just want to ask briefly if there's anything else you want to share. It's been five, almost six years since you published that paper in 2016, looking at the framework of disorder within a dialect. Is there anything that you want to share in the five years since that was published? I'm not sure off the top of my head. All I'm thinking is that, you know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I still hear a lot of SLPs saying disorder versus dialect as if they're going to pick one or the other. So I think we still have a lot more work to do in terms of changing how we view non-mainstream dialects and all dialects, being aware of our own biases across dialects, but most of all, being able to provide the most accurate assessment for the students that we work with, regardless of the dialect variation being spoken. I want to thank you both for your time this morning and for being a part of ASHA Voices. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
In our conversation, I mentioned many articles from our guests, including Kiyomi's article on cultural competency and cultural humility. Find that article and more on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org slash podcast. While you're there, you'll find a recent article from Jana. We mentioned earlier in this show the prestige that some dialects receive or the stigmatization. And in the article, you can read why Jana argues that by omitting the name of general American English in publications, the dialect is being elevated to a sort of prestige in an unfair way. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's resource, That's Unheard Of, this online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Learn more at that'sunheardof.org. I'm JD Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.